0: Welcome to Project Blue, a podcast about the people, companies, and ideas changing the way we think about and manage our global water resources. My name is Matt.
1: And I'm Alexandra. Join us as we explore innovative technologies defining the future of water. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Project Blue. We are back with an extremely exciting conversation with Michael Wardy, the co-founder of Silmar Group. Michael has a fascinating background and great story to share about starting SILMAR Group and all that they do. So without further ado, here it is. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Project Blue. I'm very excited to have you on today. You are the co-founder of SILMAR Group, a company that buys and builds businesses in the water and wastewater sector. And I'm very, very excited to hear the story of Silmar. but first, could you maybe start us off by just telling us a bit about yourself and how you got into the water sector
0: to begin with? Absolutely. Uh, and first and foremost, thank you for having me on. Yeah, so my, my background into the water sector actually started off when I was in college. I got very interested in what I call like the next generation of infrastructure generally, right? And so as we think about infrastructure, it's it's energy, it's telecom, but it's also water. And so figuring I would operate best kind of of being thrown into the fire, I ended up after college uh, buying myself a one-way ticket to China. Spent about three and a half years over there seeing that country put more money into their new infrastructure than is the worth of the entire U.S. grid, electrical grid. And so while I was over there, focused primarily actually on, on the energy side, spent three and a half years doing solar panel manufacturing work. But what I realized pretty quickly is that while climate change and kind of a shift into renewable energies clearly is a an important facet of how we're going to structure society over the next many years, water and wastewater tend to be ignored until disaster strikes, whether it's a you know a drought in Southern California or a flood in Houston or a contamination in Flint, Michigan, it's kind of a what I call like the most underappreciated yet irreplaceable commodities. So while I was over there had some great mentors who advised me to come back to the states um, and make that shift into the water sector. So I've, since then, I've spent uh, some time working for venture capital-backed water filtration technology startups, project finance groups, as subsidiaries of large energy utilities, and even a family office focused on kind of long-term patient capital investment into new Southern California water infrastructure. All of which kind of led me to founding Silmar in April of 2019.
1: That's great. You said that water is very underappreciated, yet it is one of the most irreplaceable resources on Earth. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on why it's so underappreciated. And I think the water industry in general lacks the investment that some other industries like buildings and road infrastructure and energy have. And I'm curious why you think that is.
0: It's a great question, Alexandra, and I'm not sure I have the answer, right? I think there's there's plenty of answers here. But I think on just a, kind of an individual level, uh, you know, I think when bridges collapse or when boats get stuck in the Suez Canal or when electricity goes out, all of those things are very visual, right? You can see them. Uh, you know that a disaster has struck. Water or... and kind of deferred maintenance of water infrastructure that's underneath our feet and underneath our streets is something that you don't really see on an everyday basis. Uh, You only really see it when the tap runs dry, or as I mentioned earlier, like when Houston has a flood or when New Orleans has a, a hurricane and the impacts are quite dramatic. And so I think we have, as a society, deferred a lot of the investment and maintenance on kind of the unseen related to water and wastewater. Um, and those you know, 80 years of deferred investment are finally starting to catch up. And now, I, and now I think President Biden's infrastructure plan came out today. We've seen a lot of folks that have begun to realize that this is something that we can't ignore any longer.
1: Yes, I am very hopeful too. But it is pretty crazy that around the world and even just within our state, I mean, in California, you can drive a couple hours and you'll be in a community that has a water system
0: struggling to
1: treat all of the contaminants that it needs to treat for to deliver safe drinking water to the residents.
0: Yeah that's right and, and I think just to add on to that I mean it's, it's an interesting uh, observation right where in the United States there are uh, millions of people today that don't have access to clean drinking water um, and, I, and I think what you know when we when we read the big reports on upcoming water scarcity and upcoming water concerns related to UN Sustainable Development Goals, for example, you know, there's there's a lot of focus, and I think rightfully so, on arid regions like Australia and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. Um, and yet, what what we're doing here in the U.S. today, and this isn't to, you know to cause alarm, it's just to to state facts. Is you know, Southern California and you know and the Colorado River are running low on water, and the Ogallala Aquifer in the Midwest, the largest freshwater aquifer in the world, is being drained far faster than it's being replenished. And that's obviously the home to a a large portion of the United States agricultural output. So, you know, I think what what we as a society need need to do is, yeah, obviously make sure that everybody has access to clean drinking water and as a a globe. But we also need to think about not just kind of how do we do that today, but how do we manage that amidst climate change and growing populations and urbanization, um, which are all Uh, I'll say macro trends that are going to affect us over the next, you know, 100 years.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's many factors to account for and consider when planning long term. But I'm sure we could talk for many hours about the water issues that are going (laughs) on locally and globally. But I would love for you to share the story of starting Silmar Group and what really inspired that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It'd it'd be a separate podcast to just go through all the water concerns globally. (laughs) Um, So Silmar Group... um, uh, one of my colleagues, a guy named Peter Brooks, and I were working at a family office together and in Southern California. And I think one of the things we found that kept happening as we looked at potential investments or infrastructure development opportunities was that a lot of the focus on uh, investing into this industry was either done by municipalities um, or by folks that are you know, private equity or family offices or venture capitalists that were looking for kind of the newest coolest technology that was going to promise kind of facebook like investment returns all in 5 or 7 years kind of aligned with that venture capital fund's time frame and yet as that as we kind of saw that broad trend of how people are investing into water nowadays peter and i kept running across individual family owned businesses that had been around for 30 years providing kind of key critical services to municipalities, industrial clients, commercial clients, et cetera, with founders that are baby boomers and are looking to retire and or transition out of the business over the next several years. And these firms, uh, while they are uh, kind of key components of the water industry, right, the the industry itself doesn't survive without the the folks doing the membrane cleaning or uh, providing the disinfection chemicals. Um, or doing the leak detection within sewer streets, they are uh, not going to likely ever be those Facebook style, hockey stick style growth investment opportunities that get venture capitalists excited. And so really the, the, the startup of Silmar was saying, let's look at this industry again and figure out not necessarily like how to make a quick buck, but how do you grow a really large business that well, yeah, it provides great financial returns, but I think most importantly solves customer problems. And so we started Silmar by essentially trying to rethink the way to invest in water and say, rather than having an arbitrary time frame where you know we're going to sell to to another fund or, or, or a large strategic in five or seven years and then go start up our next business, what if you instead uh, decide to build businesses kind of like folks did a hundred years or so ago? and just build businesses to last forever. And so our, our mandate and our vision is really to find uh, retiring founders that have key businesses in the water and wastewater sector and uh, work with them on a proper transition process um, that makes sense for both us and for them. And then instead of uh, you know, taking cash from the business and sending it to investors or buying a bigger house from us, Um, our goal is to continually reinvest profits from this business, either into those companies or going out and finding other companies that could provide supplemental services or geographies to the firms we already have. Um, And so really what what we're trying to do is take a a very uh, coherent, uh, steady, And I'll say conservative approach to growing a business within an industry that is inherently conservative.
1: I really like that approach about rethinking the way to invest in water because realistically, it will take a much longer period of time than just five to seven years. Um, So, what type of companies are you really targeting? Is there a specific subset within the water treatment realm, or more just anything water-related?
0: Yeah, I mean that that's uh, that's a great question, and you know one of the things that we first did as we started Silmar, and we've both been in the industry for quite some time, was basically lay out what are the types of businesses? What are the various verticals of the water industry? And I think what we quickly realized was you know, water is a part of everything, right? Water is, there's, you know, there's folks that invest in, in groundwater rights. You know, there's the, 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 the team out of Phoenix, the Zero Mass Water, now Source Group that is investing in atmospheric water generation. And then there are kind of the mom and pops that are doing things like chemical delivery for cooling tower treatment. Um, and so really uh, what what we're focused on is uh, asset light critical infrastructure service businesses. Um, so we're not gonna go build, or we're not gonna go buy a large desalination plant for a billion dollars and, and kind of run that for 30 years. Uh, our goal is really focused on the folks that are ensuring that plants operate efficiently and soundly across the country on a day-to-day basis um, without having to hold a lot of those pumps and pipes and membranes and concrete uh, on our own balance sheet.
1: Got it. And when you are assessing potential businesses to buy? What are some of the main things that you look for when you're doing your due diligence on a business? Is it more the finances of the technology itself, the people at the company, all of the above? What is the process, the due diligence process look like?
0: Yeah, um, the, the due diligence process is, is very lengthy. Um, I think our our focus, of, you know, first and foremost, you know, I mean, we're, we're obviously very interested in finding stable, profitable businesses um, that have been able to you know, survive through the downturn of 2008 and the downturn of earlier last year during COVID. Really folks that have been able to demonstrate that it, they are truly kind of critical infrastructure. And so finding uh, companies that have that steady client base, highly recurring revenue is, is number one. Um, but I think a, a really close second is finding key teams to partner with. So I think one of the things we've found uh, in our experience is that you know, with a baby boomer founder that that is retiring, a lot of that knowledge and customer relationship and expertise that that individual has, has been passed on to team members. And so, you know, within the history of water industry investing, there have been, uh, I'll say several moments in time where companies or investment funds have come into and acquired businesses and then immediately decided to cut uh, or fire all of middle management. And our, our goal is kind of the the opposite of that, right? We, we view institutional knowledge and expertise within this industry as kind of a key component of driving our future success over the next three to four decades. Um, and so our vision is, one, not just to work with an owner on on transition, but to work with remaining employees on what's the best way to kind of structure a relationship going forward.
1: Definitely. And with a lot of the workforce in the water industry retiring, I think the pass down of knowledge to younger generations will be huge going forward. Couldn't agree more. So that will be, that's a hurdle in itself. Um, and once you do decide to purchase a business, what will your role be in the company kind of on a day to day or a longer term time
0: frame? yeah, so it 's going to change over time so our our goal my goal right now is for companies that we acquire are to drop in as kind of key management and leadership team members, um, work with the existing team to um, professionalize practices, uh, develop CRMs, um, create better uh, marketing platforms and practices, and really provide teams with I guess, an extra set of hands to kind of create something that is built to last for the next 30 years. Over time, you know, our goal is always to empower team members. And so as we acquire more companies, working with kind of existing team members that have bought into the Silmar way, to go and become managers of those of those new firms and really try and integrate and incorporate into the culture that we're building.
1: That's great to hear. And do you have kind of a plan for creating for value creation in the long term with the companies that you are buying?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, in in the water sector, every business is going to be different, right? Danaher Corporation, for example, has their Kaizen method where essentially when they acquire a new business, they have a a long checklist of things that that they uh, have within their own scope to get those firms to operate most efficiently uh, and really grow both both top line revenue, uh, bottom line profit, but also you really build a culture. Um, and so I think where where we stand today is is really trying to not emulate Danaher, right? We're not a we're not a multi billion dollar company, um, but is to try and uh, help these firms that. Um, have great foundations, great cultures, uh, great customer bases, and, and great employees to try and grow that. Um, and whether that's through sales or culture or marketing or uh, negotiation of uh, contracts with various vendors and, and supply chains. Those are all areas that I think most firms need support on. Uh, and so really our goal is, you know, one, to, to diagnose where we can be most helpful uh, and then provide that operational support. Definitely.
1: And just taking a step back for a second, I guess in the realm of water treatment, where do you see the biggest inefficiencies and kind of the biggest gaps that and Where do you think the biggest change can happen? to address these gaps or inefficiencies in the way we treat water, deliver drinking water, treat wastewater, and reuse it for different purposes? Where do you see the biggest room for growth?
0: Yeah, that's another great question. And and it's a tough one, specifically because the water industry is so regional. You know, I think there are are a lot of areas where the water industry needs uh, assistance and support. In terms of, you know, what are the pain points in the industry today? A couple that really come to, to my mind. Uh, I'll say three actually. You know, one is water treatment and, and wastewater treatment in particular uh, is incredibly energy intensive. You know, treating wastewater is essentially a massive aeration problem. Um, and so figuring out solutions to minimize the energy consumption for, for these treatments is, is number one. Uh, number two is actually on, uh, It would be more on the distribution of water. And I'll just use Southern California's example where most of our water is coming from the Colorado River or Northern California and being pumped incredibly long distances. And that's important not only because, again, energy consumption is the vast majority of the cost, right? And and using energy efficiently is important, both both for cost but for for climate change. But also it does provide a, a theoretical risk if or when a large earthquake were were to happen, or if or when a situation like what just happened in Texas where there's fluctuating temperatures, how do you manage those long pipelines? And then number three really is, is on emerging contaminants, and and that's something where we in the water industry are, are tracking, you know, a, a suite of contaminants that are in our water that currently aren't regulated, and uh, the costs to do so. And you know, one specific example is is a contaminant called PFAS, PFAS, um, which are the kind of the uh, materials that are in Teflon or the waterproof coating in a in a Patagonia jacket or in firefighting foam, and these are called the forever chemicals. And so they're in our drinking water, you know, babies born in the United States today already have PFAS in their bodies, they bioaccumulate. And so figuring out a way where we as a country and we as, as our globe can begin to uh, manage and treat and uh, remediate these new emerging contaminants in our water to provide the next generations with a, a cleaner water supply is clearly something that um, is a gap in our kind of national consciousness at the moment.
1: Definitely, there's many emerging contaminants that are more and more expensive to treat for, and then there's so many water systems that are struggling financially to keep up, and it's kind of this bad cycle. Especially with COVID, some people can't pay water bills, and then the systems struggle more and get farther behind with regards to treating all of these emerging contaminants. It's a hard cycle to break.
0: That, that's why we're in the industry. We are Alexandra. Exactly. We're, we're all. We're Both working on it.
1: And you mentioned also the distribution of water is its own hurdle. Decentralized water treatment, I know, is something you've worked on quite a bit. So I was curious how you see that playing a role in the long term. If you see it kind of as a potential replacement to large centralized treatment plants or more of a supplement to municipal treatment plants.
0: You know, I think we, uh, we as a society, we in America have kind of enjoyed the benefits of centralized water and wastewater treatment infrastructure for many decades now, right? Um, we've built these pipelines through our streets to these billion dollar facilities, um, either in the center or outside of, outside of cities and, and enjoyed what I'll call the economies of scale, right? Where if you're, if you're treating 100 million gallons per day, the cost to do so typically, the cost to treat one gallon is less than the cost to treat one gallon if you only have a, a ten gallon per day system. And but I think what what we've seen is that over the, the past eighty years, as we've foregone some of the the needed maintenance on on those pipelines and on those treatment plants, that new technologies have begun to emerge that are really great supplements to those centralized treatment plants. So, in, I guess in a direct answer to your question, I don't think decentralization of water is going to be in any way similar to the decentralization of telecom you know moving from landlines to cell phones um, or even from centralized coal-fired power plants to rooftop solar Um, but what I do think is that there's always going to be a role for things like individual wells in areas where it's too expensive to build a new pipeline to a a farm or um, in certain locations that are looking to uh, put more emphasis on water efficiency, decentralized wastewater treatment, either at the building level or at the neighborhood level. So that instead instead of building a four mile pipeline to connect the sewer at a million dollars per mile, instead you put a new decentralized wastewater treatment facility in a um, building of sorts near a neighborhood, capture all the wastewater and reuse that for irrigation. So I, I think really what, my overall thoughts on decentralization is it's, the, the technologies and the, has improved and the costs have come down in such a way that there really is an opportunity to not have to build a new billion-dollar treatment plant in the center of New York City, but also to say that it's always going to be a part of a portfolio that includes both centralized and decentralized infrastructure because there are uh, you know, cost and treatment benefits to having that larger scale. Definitely.
1: I see it as a great supplement as well. And just going back to Silmar, um, I'm just curious, kind of on a longer term, what is your vision 10 or 20 or 30 years down the line for Silmar Group? Kind of how do you see Silmar operating? How many companies are you planning to ideally buy? And how do you envision Silmar Group?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I, I hope Silmar is the company that I retire from you know, our, our goal is not to just go buy companies to buy companies um, first and foremost. So, you know, we are, we are not a roll-up strategy. We're not, you know, we're not looking to fire a bunch of people and load up with a bunch of debt and buy as many companies as we can and then sell. Um, and so when you, when you have a, a 30-year mindset rather than a five-year mindset, you can make very different decisions in terms of investing into people, equipment, or, or as you mentioned kind of supplementary businesses that can create value for the customer um, so we we kind of refer to it more as a buy than build approach and so our, our vision is to grow something that you know grows exponentially over a period of time we're hoping to really focus on providing services that solve customer problems which sounds vague but in the water industry that can be everything from you know ensuring that no sewage uh, no sewer is blocked or ensuring that cooling tower cycles are operating efficiently. And once doing that, you know over a period of time, within this this group of, uh, I'll say family or individual owned businesses in the, within the water sector, there's only so many of those. And so I think what gets us really excited about is, once you start building a company and you create a foundation from which you can grow over a multi-decade timeframe, then you're able to start Doing the fun things and finding you know new technologies that other folks aren't using within this specific space, or uh, enabling new types of individuals to come into this industry um, in an industry that's been pretty kind of stayed and you know lacks a lot of diversity as it stands right now. And so our our goal really is to uh, create something that can last beyond us, um, and in doing so, you know again provide a really peerless service to our customers and in, in ensuring that, you know, when the water that they need is of the quality that they need and the wastewater that they discharge is of the quality that they need discharge. Um, and really it's uh, once you get water in water out, there's a, a lot of, um, a lot of economic, but also societal benefits from that.
1: And I love that approach and your perspective. I think, More people need to have that perspective. How can I have society benefit from these companies in the long term and as opposed to how can we profit from this the most in the shorter term? I think your approach is conducive to the most, the greatest outcome. Well, thank you. Um, I'm excited to see where Silmar Group goes. But I have taken up quite a bit of your time now and I am very appreciative of you taking the time today to be on Project Blue. I was just curious if you have any last things to share or to leave listeners with? And if anyone would like to learn more about Silmar Group or get in contact with you, where would you direct them?
0: Thank you for having me on the show. I think what you and Matt are doing is awesome and, you know, giving uh, more of a platform for, you know, new interesting water companies and technologies and and the folks that are trying to drive change in this space. So thank you for, uh, again, having me on the show and If you want to find out more about Silmar, feel free to visit the website. It's www.silmar. that's S as in Sam, Y, L, M as in Michael, A, R, G, R, P as in Peter.com.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Michael. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael as much as I did. I loved hearing about the exciting area he's working in and his perspective about how to create the most growth and positive impact in the long term. Feel free to check out Silmar Group's website if you'd like to learn more, and we'll catch you next time.